0: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a who done it for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there.
5: You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio.
6: My understanding was this was going to be that I was allowed to ask you some questions as well. I don't know. I'm sure it's okay. Well, I'm going to ad lib a little bit. It's supposed to be a conversation. It's supposed to be a conversation. right? Yeah. We've had a couple of those over the years. Yeah, just we one have. or two. We
7: have. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both and to have lots of conversations with people I know and admire. And I can't think of a better guest to start off this new season with than someone I've known for more than 25 years, Huma Abedin. Huma and I first met back in 1996 when I was first lady and she was an intern assigned to the office of the first lady. We've worked together ever since, at the White House, in the Senate, at the State Department, traveling the world and crisscrossing our country in a couple of campaigns. And boy, have we been through some incredible times together. But Huma has her own story to tell, which she does so beautifully in her new memoir called Both And, A Life in Many Worlds. It's been on all kinds of best books lists, and I am delighted to get to talk to her about her life and about the memoir she wrote all about it. So welcome to this podcast, Huma.
6: I have not been uh, as excited for any other interview recently as I have been to have a conversation with you because I feel as though the reason this book exists is in large part because of you. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. You know,
7: I want to start where you start. Obviously, so many of the interviews have focused on your time in the White House and serving in the Senate uh, with me and being in the secretary of state office at the State Department and everything else. But I want our listeners to learn more about your childhood. Just give us a little bit of a, an overview, because clearly your family is at the center of this story. And
6: I want people to know a little bit more about them, too. So I did choose to start my story with my family history because I think this is actually something you and I have in common, is we are both curious about other people, other cultures, other languages, why people are compelled to do certain things or make certain decisions, and for me— Ever since I was a little girl, I loved reading stories. I was brought up in a house with two academics who furnished our entire inner lives with books, stories. We would stage these uh, theater shows for our parents. We loved, my parents loved the theater. And so we'd have performances. And so my brother was always the hero. (laughs) My older sister, Hadil, was always like Princess Leia. And I was always like Chewbacca or like the bad guy who gets killed. Every single time. So when you ask, Birth order birth, birth order. birth order. And my little sister Hibbo, who came four years later, who was like this dainty rose and the baby in the family. you know, she always got to play the precious little princess. So that's the role I played. I was the, you know, the typical middle child. I was raised in Saudi Arabia, as you know, born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, immigrant parents. And I've been thinking about this a lot over the last weeks because as I do these interviews, I tell people, all the people who ask me, why did you write this book? And I say, to some degree, it's a love letter to my father who died when I was 17. But he was essentially terminally ill for just about my entire life. And we didn't know that. It was a diagnosis. He was diagnosed with a renal failure when I was two. We were living in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And it's, you know, one of the first lines I wrote when I was writing this book, which is my father was told he was dying. And so he went out and he lived. And he was my age. He was 46 when he got that diagnosis. I was two, my older sister was four, and my brother was not even 10, and, you know, collected their kids and we moved to Saudi Arabia um, two months later. And I think my father, not knowing how much time he had left, decided that he was everything he wanted to do on his bucket list he was going to do. He starts a thought institute that explored Muslim minority conditions around the world, and took us everywhere. And I think that gift of being curious and respectful, because really the way he raised us was the only way we were all going to live in peace together. This world, the globe, was for everyone to come to the table um, as equals. And I really think that grounding landed me in that White House at 21 as an intern for you. And it was an environment that was basically... Driven, inspired—that is how you and President Clinton were. The values, the the causes, the missions—and it's, I think, one of the reasons that it's been uh, hard, impossible to leave you. I think I'm going to be in some way of service to you until I die.
7: Oh dear, because well, let's not talk I mean, about no, that. I mean, not to be like dramatic, <laughs> but I just think
6: it's that—it's that connection.
7: Well, but I listened to your story. Obviously, I've had the great. Delight of getting to know your mom. I wish I could have met your dad, but I feel like I have a real sense of him from what you've said, and certainly the way that you so lovingly portray him in the book. But the upbringing they gave you is something that so equipped you for the work that you started to do when you were 21. So I think that you became, in wonderful ways, the product of their values and their understanding of what is a life well lived. And one of my favorite memories is going to the college in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, where you grew up, that your mother helped to start and that she was still helping to run when I was secretary of state. And we went to this school together to really see and be part of your mother's lifelong work. And I I really admire your mother was on the front lines of women's rights. She was, you know, involved in the preparation for the Beijing conference where I spoke. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the role
6: that uh, she played also in your life? Certainly uh, in our household, education was a religion. Uh, My parents told us ever since I have conscious memories, you can do anything you want. We don't care. All we require is that you be educated mm-hmm. and to really, you know, push myself to learn and grow and experience and and to be fearless. And I think I really um, I give that credit to my father, but also to my mother. She was a refugee, had to leave her home in India after the partition and fled to Pakistan. They didn't want to. She was living in Bombay. They had this dream life. And then one morning, everything changed and moves to America. She gets a Fulbright scholarship, goes to the University of Pennsylvania, meets my father, doesn't return to Pakistan to marry the man she was promised to, meets my father, they get married, and then moves to this country, really what she did for my father. He was the Mm -hmm. one sort of driving this train, and she was really along for the ride. But that moment, that very first moment, she said the first year she lived there, she would look out the window, and every time she saw an airplane, she would dream that she was on that Mm -hmm. airplane. And instead of just sort of wallowing or being sort of angry and resentful about it, she did the opposite. She walked into that university. She was working at um, the first English language university in Jeddah at the time. She was a sociologist. She just immersed herself in the culture in the environment. She taught herself Arabic. So even though my father you know, was kind of the hero in our family, my mother is the one who made it all happen. She's the one who would bake brownies when we had a bake sale the next morning. She's the one who sewed our clothes. And when my father was sick, she's the one who essentially aided and abetted the illusion that he was healthy. Mm -hmm. even though he was sick. And she was the one taking him to the hospital in the middle of the night. She was the one cleaning up after him and sort of propping him up and allowing him to be this invincible father. And we were able to live kind of really these carefree childhoods. So when you came to
7: college, eventually, to George Washington University in uh, Washington, D.C., you been back and forth to the United States but it was shortly after your dad had died and as you beautifully portray in the book that was a devastating event uh, for you and for your family what was that transition like from finishing you know high school in Saudi Arabia and then losing your dad and then packing up and moving to the US to GW for college
6: I was in such shock in fact The first conversation I had with my mother after my father's funeral was that I wasn't going to go to university, uh, that I was going to stay in Saudi Arabia and help run my father's institute. And my mother tells me, your father would have wanted you to go to school. In the end, it is your choice. Shortly before he'd passed away, before he'd gotten sick, uh, my father told me um, the biggest challenge I was going to have moving to the United States and living there for the first time for university, he, he called it actually, it was going to be a revolution
3: mm-hmm.
6: and that it was going to be a cultural revolution that, you know, I'd grown up really in a in a society and environment where, you know, we had this very supportive community. It's called the Ummah, the ever-present community in Islam. That's just the community we lived in. There was always somebody there to help, to support, to be there for you. You never had a sense of loneliness or isolation. So to walk into the George Washington University campus, really less than two months after I'd lost my father, you know, being in an environment that was entirely foreign to me. And I really did struggle with that. And the way I dealt with it was I threw myself into everything. I joined every student association, every cultural club. I kept very, very busy, and I studied everything. I mean, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be Christiana Amanpour. She'd been my model. But I studied political science, and I took philosophy and creative writing and theater just to see what else I would love. And I think it's one of the best things I did. Mm.
7: Well, then let's fast forward. Uh, a little bit because uh, you end up applying for and being accepted uh, as an intern in the White House and lucky for me being assigned uh, to the First Lady's office. And give us a a bit Mm -hmm. of an impression about going to work in the White House, being assigned to the First Lady's office, meeting me for the listeners, kind of paint the picture that you do so well in your book.
6: I always tell people I think it was a combination of fate, luck, and hard work that landed me in that office because I had a friend uh, at university who was interning for Mike McCurry, who was then the White House press secretary. And since I had intended to become Christiane Amanpour, I thought the only way, the best way to do that was to get an internship in the same office. But I was assigned to the First Lady's policy office, and that was Milan Verveer, who was then your deputy chief of staff for policy. And I remember stepping out into the hallway and calling my mother from those old brick cell phones and saying, "Mom, how am I going to be Christiane Amanpour if I'm in the First Lady's policy office and not in the press office?" And my mother said, "You know, sometimes Plan A doesn't work out, but Plan B works out pretty well." And boy, did it ever! Because going into Milan's office, my job as an intern, my first day in September 1996, was to respond to policy correspondence, and these were all the issues: First Lady Hillary Clinton a selection of issues that she was working on. And I remember being stunned opening one folder and it was uh, letters uh, about you were advocating for female genital mutilation, it becoming illegal for mm-hmm. it to be practiced in this country, which it wasn't illegal at the time. I looked at all these other, you know, documents, early childhood development and health care and women's rights all over the world. I mean, it just spanned so many really important substantive issues. And I, I've I remember being hooked almost from day one to the work, to the information. It was so interesting and it felt so important, uh, this notion of, you know, serving people and helping people around the world. And, um, you know, when you're an intern in the White House, the president and first lady are essentially these mythological figures. You know, Mm -hmm. you you don't see or, uh, or hear from them personally very often. So the first time I actually met you, Was re-election night, November 1996. Mm -hmm. The DNC had chartered some planes for staff to go down and they'd offered interns an opportunity to buy a seat Mm -hmm. on that plane and a group of interns went down. And I remember walking around that lawn um, as we were gathering, looking at the jumbotron. As the states were called for President Clinton, I mean, it was politics on steroids. I just remember feeling electrified. It just felt, you know, so exciting to be there. And um, after the election was called, you both came down with the gores and and worked a rope line. And I remember I was pretty far back in the crowd. (laughs) And I remember pushing my way through and reaching my hand over the shoulders of others. And I will never forget this moment. You reached out through the crowd and you shook my hand. You looked right at me and you said, thank you. Mm -hmm. You had no idea I was an intern in your office. And I will forever remember that moment. And that experience that I had is something that has stayed with me as you've met people around the world, as you've been – at these events and sh- done rope lines and people would say, oh, please, please, one more handshake. I would always try to say, come on this side, shake that person's hand because that was you. I remember that was my it. own experience. <laughs> I still remember my own experience and what that means. It is a once in a lifetime yeah. for many people. Yeah. And for me, I had the privilege of that being just the beginning.
7: We're taking a quick break. Stay with us.
10: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
7: Well, you did such uh, an excellent job in my office and you know, you just uh, developed a real reputation as a go-to person. And you know, we've had some amazing experiences all of these years. Is there a favorite trip that we've taken together that uh, pops immediately to the front of your brain when you think back?
6: That is going to be very <laughs> That's kind of a hard very one, I difficult. Know. So my first couple sort of stay in my mind because I had no idea what I was doing. And you were so patient with me. I remember the first day they they threw me in because the attitude a little bit in our office was a little bit of sink or swim. Let's mm-hmm. see if she can do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as you well know, I had a hard time finding my voice. I whispered. Yes, you did. Um, you did not speak up, as I, I used did. to say to you. <laughs> I did. I did not <laughs> speak up. But um, when you were in the White House, I remember um, staffing you on a trip to The the Hague And as you were flying over, we got news that King Hussein of Jordan had passed away, and you were very close. You and the president were very close to King Hussein and and Queen Noor. And for me, as a girl growing up in Saudi Arabia, he was sort of this larger-than-life champion of peace. And I remember you landed in the Hague. We did a few events, and as you were leaving, you told me to get on the plane. Mm -hmm. And I went to that funeral, and you introduced me to Queen Noor. And this—I mean, it was such a big moment for me. Just, you know, personally, it meant so much to be included um and then the trip to Israel the very first trip to Israel in December 1998 that I made and you were advancing i it. was advancing and it. i think it's important for listeners to understand
7: what that means because people who work for Those of us in public life or politics uh, often are going to so many different places, and you need to send people ahead to, you know, really nail down the schedule, to do the walkthroughs, to figure out what's going to happen. And, of course, in my case, coordinate with the Secret Service and everything that's going on. So – Here you are, this uh, Muslim American, uh, having grown up in Saudi Arabia, you're sent to Israel to help advance the trip that Bill and I, the president and I, are going to take. There is a moment in your book that rang so true to me when you'd been working closely with the advance team from the Israeli Mm -hmm. government, and you're at a meal with them. Describe that, because I found that to be
6: so poignant. I— grew up in a in a country where, you know, certainly I did not know any Jews or, the, you know, you, Israel was very much the other. I mean, and this is in the 80s and the Palestinian intifada was uh, underway. And so even though I grew up in a house where my father says, you have to explore the other, understand, it, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I just thought that there was a different way of thinking or existence. I, I didn't know what I expected, actually. So to land in Jerusalem, and we stayed at the Jerusalem Hilton that very first trip, and to stand on my balcony and to look out at the old city and see, you know, the most important holy place for Jews— Um, you know, the Wailing Wall, Temple Mount, to see one of the most important, you know, significant sites for for Muslims, the Dome of the Rock, Masjid al-Aqsa, and then to know this is where Jesus Christ took his final steps um, on the Via Dolorosa. As somebody of faith, of, you know, one of the monotheistic faiths, to just stare at this space and think, it all happened right here, was such an overwhelming experience. And not only that, I was there on behalf of an administration whose entire motivation was to figure out how to get everyone to live and work together. And then at the end of this week, going to lunch, and everybody else on the delegation aside from me who had traveled from the White House— were American Jews. I mean, it was uh, obviously, you know, everybody wanted to go, including me. And so I, it was funny because all of the nameplates were names like Shamir and Stein and <laughs> Rosenthal and Steinberg and then Aberdeen was the last one <laughs> at the last um, meal we had with the Israeli foreign ministry. We're sipping our mint tea and the delegation official leans over to me and says, you know, we really like this American delegation, but you're our favorite because you're the most like us. Isn't that amazing? And I remember sitting there thinking, Mm -hmm. yes, Mm -hmm. he's right. Mm -hmm." I have this cultural connection. I know the food. I understand the language. You know, it was such a moment. I found a letter I wrote to my mother on Hotel Letterhead saying this trip has changed me forever, changed my life. Mm -hmm. It was so meaningful. And then, I mean, gosh, we went to Iceland and we bought boots together. That was a fun (laughs) trip on that heated sidewalk. We went to Florence towards the end of— the White House, you were there for a Third Way conference, I remember. Yeah. When we I think won, I bought a coat that I still wear. Oh, my God, you got a black coat. I mean, We just had so much dancing in Morocco. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. at the Mamounia yeah. Hotel. I mean, there were so many We moments. also had great meals. Oh, my God, we ate We ate our way around the world. Ate our way around the world. And we continue <laughs> to eat our way around the world. Boy, you have fed me very well. I yeah, have to thank well, you for that. Yeah. You're or welcome. the Saudi you're king, welcome. do you remember? Do you oh remember my the gosh. meal with the Saudi in, king in his tent, tent. that
7: tent was in more the desert, like a palace. It was the biggest tent I'd ever seen. It was when I was Secretary of State and we were meeting with then King Abdullah and he had uh, all of his uh, top officials. I had my traveling party plus the press. And they laid out a meal for us in another part of the tent that was the biggest. Buffet I've ever seen. It went around three sides of that big tent. Remember?
6: It <laughs> was unbelievable. <laughs> my, and they kept, you know, you would take a little bit. They'd say, oh, want some more? Want some well, more? We, none of us, it, it occurred to none of us to brief you properly. This is actually 100% my failure. You and the king are walking along this buffet, and you had this man with a tray behind you. <laughs> and it had one plate with empty spoons and then one empty plate for the dirty spoons. And as you walked down the buffet, you were meant to sample. Oh, yeah. And then discard the spoon and then tell the other gentleman, I would like this and I would like that. And then you get to the end, then you sit down and they start bringing you plates and plates of food you had sampled. And you're like, no, I'm already full because you had basically eaten yeah, I as you at the buffet. And then I bring you your cards over that you're supposed to, you know, raise with his majesty. Mm-hmm. And as you're about to raise these points a TV screen <laughs> comes up from the middle of the table and a soccer
7: match. It appears. was a soccer match so that nobody could overhear us. Right, that, right. That was, was that, a strategy, was, uh, right? Your secret yeah, conversation. it was. We'll be right back.
5: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick
7: So you uh, probably know better than anybody. What would people be most surprised about traveling with me? I
6: think the fact that I still can't get over this, how you can like be getting ready for a really big bilateral meeting or speech and we're flying somewhere and then you just fall asleep (laughs) in the chair next to me. Like when you were secretary, it was like unbelievable. And then you wake up, you're like, "Okay, I'm good. (laughs) I, the, you know, I think maybe the big secret that nobody knows is that everyone says you're so well prepared. Mm-hmm. You're so briefed. Mm-hmm. And I don't really, I don't know. I think you, you're you either a speed reader or you digest information or you just well, know a lot of stuff. Because on those plane rides, we spend a lot of time eating, laughing, joking, <laughs> teasing Philippe, who was always asleep. Um, but the, the way you can digest information I think it's probably a big surprise. Well, I've had a lot of experience, as as you know. You know, I
7: did uh, a recent uh, masterclass about resilience and talked about, uh, you know, what it's like to pick yourself up. Everybody gets knocked down. We all have to figure out how to keep going. And as part of that masterclass, I interviewed you about mentorship and passing on some of these lessons. But Do you have advice about what to do in the face of weariness and pessimism
6: and discouragement uh, that you'd want to share? For me, every day I get up, and maybe this is the result of being raised in a house with an ill parent, every day I wake up and I'm healthy, um, I have gratitude just Mm. to be alive and to be Mm. in this world. And even on days when I thought things were really bad, and boy, I have definitely had some experiences in my life that are really bad, I am somehow able— to recognize that there are millions of people mm-hmm. in this world that have it worse than I do. And I think that's what has kept me going. And for me, I had the benefit of being raised by parents who mm-hmm. I think resilience is something that you build. I think you're not just born with it.
7: I I, I think it can be inculcated. 100%. And you've done that with your son, Jordan, uh-huh. who— I, I have just been overjoyed to get to know and watching Kim grow up. And he is just such a joyful, determined, you know, young man.
6: You know, to have—I was raised in a household with radical empathy. I work for a boss who has radical empathy. That boss is you. My father, when he was 21, broke his back. He was an equestrian in the riding school at university. And um, his horse threw him, and he fell, and he—, he he hurt his back and for a week was crawling around. And finally, when his friends took him into the doctor, uh, they said, have you been walking around on a broken back? Like, that's the man who raised me. And actually, we took horse riding lessons when I was young. And I'm not sure I've ever told you the story. I was about 15. My horse, Buttercup, I was supposed to be doing my riding exercises inside the shed and Buttercup just snapped and I couldn't. We went into a canter and I lost control and i was thrown from my horse and landed right on my back both my parents were there and they came running over and my mother you know immediately says nope, that's it that's it this is too dangerous you know we we're going home immediately and my father who walked his whole life with a hunched back cuz he'd broken his back looks right at me and he says no she has to get back on that horse i mean that determination, that resolve, they made sure I was okay. You know, I limped around a little bit, but they got me mm. back on Buttercup immediately. Mm. And I remember I was shaking. I was so scared. Mm. But I did it. Mm. And throughout my childhood, my parents would do that. Go go talk to our guests in the living room. Go read your poetry. Go call the travel agent and find out about flights. I think it's so important. Are you important. doing that with Jordan too? I'm doing that with Jordan. Not as much as, you know, I, f- I, I think I intentionally need to do more. But yes, I bring him along with me mm. places.
7: You know, clearly I value your advice, your strategic thinking, your organizational ability, all of that. But I want to ask the question that's on everybody's mind Where did you? get your fashion sense. (laughs) I mean, here you are growing up mostly in Saudi Arabia. And in the book, you write about how you just loved reading Vogue magazine. And who knew years later, you'd become a close (laughs) friend of Anna Wintour. Uh, But, you know, from the little I know about the time you were growing up, you, you know, you were covered. Uh, That was expected, except in special occasions when you could be pretty much in a very closed private environment. So, how did you end up with this love of fashion? You wanted to be an international correspondent like Christiane <laughs> Amanpour. Right. But one of the first things everybody notices about you is that you really are an iconic fashionista yourself.
6: So, first of all, I'd like to point out that I'm wearing one of my favorite all-time accessories, and it is this patent leather belt that First Lady Hillary Clinton gifted to me Uh as you were leaving the White House. Well, of course, because I'd outgrown it, sadly, but, you know. And and by the way, it was mostly dented in one notch, which was the— Finest, thin as smallest, as thinnest well, one. You had a tiny I mean, waist. I, I used to have a waist. I mean, it, it's
7: tiny. been years since I have seen it, but I, I know it's still I there somewhere. I cherish this belt,
6: so I know you. I know that there's this thing out there you don't really care about fashion, but you do have some exquisite pieces. Now, I don't have a memory in my life where I didn't love something about dressing up. Mm-hmm. I was definitely a girl's girl, looking pretty and wearing ribbons. And Vogue magazine was. Mm-hmm my most prized possession. And I would tear out, my mother was a beautiful seamstress, beautiful. I think it's one of the reasons I really love clothes is my mother, I would see her, you know, I would go to the material shops in the old city in Balad with her. I open my my whole story about, a, you know, shopping in Balad and you, bolts of fabric and chiffon and silk. And it was just this magical, you could create something extraordinary out of this material. And watching my mother sew and those Vogue magazines, it sort of really just became a bit of a you know fascination of mine and mm-hmm. a way to express myself because i was fairly quiet in my early 20s mm-hmm. and beyond well
7: you know that brings me to this crazy idea that people have been pitching us oh, about yeah a food and travel show, but I think it should be food, fashion, and, that, and travel. I agree. Don't you? I'm really
6: into this. And I
7: mean, I can be the total kind of nerd about this because, you know, my idea of fashion is, you know, pretty limited, uh, let's be honest. But, but, but I, I recognize <laughs> it when I see it and I think that
6: would be kind of fun. I think, here's what I think. I think <laughs> we could do a show where we travel around the world. I could style you in different places. Oh, no, you're not styling me. Oh, and then no. I would it's, shop it's for hopeless. myself. It it's would be hopeless. both. and then. <laughs> and then we would go to some we would try some amazing uh-huh. food mm-hmm. and then we would like have a hike somewhere. Oh, right? I think that's like we like... both love hiking. We, we do. We both love walking and being outdoors. All right, I, this show we got to figure out what the show would be called though.
7: Oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't have no idea. Uh Hungry with Huma and Hillary? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's hilarious. That's a great idea. Oh my God. You know, uh, but this is Part of why you and I have been together so long, because in the worst of oh times, yeah. we've always been able not just to pick ourselves up, which sounds kind of, you know, just utilitarian, like, okay, one foot in front of the other, but to find enjoyment mm. and to force ourselves, get outside yeah. for that walk, go for that wonderful meal that. You know, we want to enjoy together. Get a bunch of people that you care about and that you want to get to know together and sit around a table. And then, you know, you know, for me it's really fun to help people and find ways to help people. And you have been a wonderful partner to me in this because we used to get handed little slips of paper that people would put in my hand or yours saying, you know, can you help me with this problem with my, you know, child or I've lost my Job, or I see an injustice somewhere. What can you do to help me? And you know, so we also share that it's that mm-hmm. idea that you expressed earlier of radical empathy. You know, when you try to put yourself into somebody else's experience. And I think you wanted to read something before. I we do want to read and I, before and I, and we I, wrapped I, up. And I want to end by. Asking you about what your hopes are for the new year, but but I want you to read uh, that excerpt from I, your book.
6: I, I want to read the excerpt, and I do want to recall the many, many hours of people. One of the things people ask me about all the time, but two things they ask me. Number one, what did she ask you not to put in the book? Mm. What did she say you couldn't put in? I said nothing, nothing. literally nothing. Mm. It's all in there including when she broke her elbow and I saw it and fainted and and peed in my pants and you said, go take care of her. Um, The second thing people always ask me is, what do you guys talk about? You're always in these, like, secret conversations and you're whispering (laughs) in her ear. And how much time we would spend with you saying, do you remember that woman I met yesterday, you know, at the coffee shop who had that problem with her son? How many of those, quote unquote, secret conversations that we had that was about somebody else. Yeah. And I always share this with people and they say, well, you know, what's it really like? You know, can politics is so tough and, you know, how can you stay optimistic? And I always say it's because I remember following you around this country starting in you know 1998 but really into that especially in 2008 and 2016 into people's homes into coffee shops and school gymnasiums and as you're on that stage and then working that rope line we walk around we talk to people we are carrying the hopes dreams fears and aspirations of all of these people and think about the responsibility you felt on your shoulders when you walked out of those events and got into that car and got on that plane and went back to Washington to serve wherever it was in the Senate or beyond and how that motivated you to keep going. And it really inspired me to follow you. And so that's, I think, what we spend a lot of our time in those whispered conversations that people talk about. So this is one of my favorite passages in the book, and, uh, and it's towards the end of the book, and I write about all the things that um, I have learned. From Hillary Clinton, I have learned all kinds of things— How to be confident, brave, unfailingly empathetic, future-focused, tough, and gracious. She and I have had countless adventures over the past 25 years, and who knows what lies in the future, but I am still certain about one thing. Hillary Clinton would have been an exceptional president of the United States, maybe one of the best presidents. I say that with even more conviction and resolve today than when I believed it as a starry-eyed young woman. The overarching quest of her public life has always been how to help every man, woman, and child reach their full potential. That purpose drove every policy rollout, every bill in the Senate, every speech she delivered, every town and country she visited, every book she wrote. Her focus was always how to give each child the opportunity to grow and flourish, every parent the tools to raise healthy, educated children, every person the right to live in dignity, Every worker, the protections and rights to succeed and thrive. As president, she would have done the tough things, the right things, the messy but necessary things. She would have reached across the aisle and forced divergent opinions to the table to help all Americans. She would have served her country, not herself. Maybe it won't happen in her lifetime or mine, but I am confident that history will remember her as one of the American greats.
7: Oh, wow. It's my favorite passage in the book, and I I really—
6: You well, it, and it goes it, on. But. It
7: means the world to me because, you know, you and I, we've spent, I don't know, by this time, millions of hours together. And it's given me uh, a lot of confidence having you by my side um, during all those years. And I'm so proud of you. And I'm so, I'm so not just excited, but grateful you wrote this book. It is both your story and a universal story. Okay. So, what are your hopes for the new year, my friend?
6: Well, I hope to eat good food first and foremost. <laughs> um, I hope nobody who looks at you <laughs> would believe
7: how much you <laughs> eat. Honestly, <laughs> you are like the queen it, of pasta. It is really bad. I'm looking forward to our pasta across lunch after this. The
6: world. <laughs> I also, I you know, I'm looking forward to this, this seeing the end days of this pandemic. Mm. And as you and I have been talking about a lot over the last few days and weeks what can we do as part of the mission uh, that we are on together to help other people young people young leaders like what are the ways that we can participate in the world and i'm excited to see about any new adventures i mean you always as i say you're always the one who comes up with these crazy ideas i'm just along for the ride so well, we're going to with some more for one crazy one of your crazy ones. ideas <laughs> um, but uh, wishing everybody happy healthy new year and yeah. i'm thrilled to be in this conversation with you it is
7: A wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity for me to, you know, not only have this conversation with you, but to underscore how special you are and how lucky I've been to have you in my life um, for all these years. So let's just keep going, my friend, wherever that journey leads us uh, to more food, more adventure, more fashion, more fun and more radical empathy. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much. <laughs> Huma Abedin's new memoir is called Both And, A Life in Many Worlds, and I promise you won't be able to put it down. You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin, Kathleen Russo, and Rob Russo with help from Huma Abedin, Oscar Flores, Lindsay Hoffman, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Lona Valmoro, and Benita Zomman. Our engineer is Zach McNeese, and original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, tell someone else about it. And if you're not already a subscriber, what are you waiting for? You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: See you next week. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in. Take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Every family has an origin story.